Our second uh, scripture reading this evening is a continuation of John. So John is the gospel writer who says, why use a hundred words when a thousand will do? And so we'll continue in picking up in this story in chapter four, if you want to turn there in your Bibles and join me. So I'm picking up in verse 27 of chapter four. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one else brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you. And see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor." Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world." For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. This is perhaps one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. If I could, I would do a five-week sermon series on it. Just take it chunk by chunk. But tonight, we just get an overview of our lectionary. And so as we're journeying to towards Lent, towards the cross, and this period of kind of examining ourselves and our lives with God, this passage asks questions of us, questions that I think are helpful in our faith journey. Now, as I get underway here, just confirm for me, did Mike, Pastor Mike, last week talk about Nicodemus? Yes or no? Yes. Great. Perfect. Okay, so reach back to your high school lit class farther for others than it is. Um, But if you can reach back to your high school lit class, there is something called uh, foils when you had characters and they were supposed to play off of one another, right? To be the opposite of. So the woman at the well is the foil of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the pinnacle of privilege. Like he's an educated dude in leadership, part of the, the Jewish Uh, educated elite. He's referred to as a leader. He's got all of this knowledge. The the degrees are all over his wall, right? Then he comes to Jesus at night and he says, 
we know you're of God, right? But that's as far as Nicodemus' understanding ever gets. And then you have this story, this woman who's uneducated, foreigner, outsider, comes and has this conversation with Jesus, and she has a much different reaction than Nicodemus does. And the question for us is, is why? What makes her encounter so radically different? The first thing to note here is that the actual assigned text for this day is actually verse 5 through 42. And so I figured if we were already reading that many verses, we could just might as well start at the top of the chapter and include the first four. And that's important because Jesus is traveling. He's going to go to Galilee. And so you can pull out your Bible map, or maybe you grew up with one of those in a Sunday school room. And the most logical way for Jesus to travel would have been to go through Samaria. That would have been the shortest route. But most Jewish people did not take that route because the Samaritans were others, right? And so we get this context in the story of the good Samaritan. They were shocked that one could be good, right? And in our Amy Jill Levine study, there's a whole conversation about whether or not we should even call it the good Samaritan. But if you're not reading that book, see me after and I'll fill you in. But we have the Samaritans here, and Jewish people who are observant would have taken the long way all the way around. But here the text says in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. Why? Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? I think one of the most important connections we can make is actually to reach back and say, what did we just read in John 3? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That's what Jesus says. And so here you have Jesus putting his feet where his mouth is, right? He's embodying his own theology. He's saying, yes, I really do mean to be this inclusive, to the point where the disciples are shocked. Like, they're so appalled, nobody actually talks to Jesus about it. They have side conversations. Can you believe this? Who he's talking to? Who he let in here, right? Because the profound truth of the gospel is that it's always more welcoming than we're really comfortable with. If it's not that, it's not the gospel, right? And so Jesus goes through Samaria, and he has this this conversation, and it starts with this radical question. Question number one, can you give me a drink? This question is crazy because it breaks all of our social taboos, all of the conventions of the time. You would not share something as intimate as a water jar with a Samaritan. And yet Jesus asks, and why does Jesus ask? Because he's tired, because his humanity is on display, because it's the noonday heat. It's as hot as it is, or I'm told, in July in Mississippi. Haven't experienced it yet, but I know it's going to be oppressive, right? Jesus is tired, and he says, can you give me a drink? I love how human our Savior is that he experienced even something as simple as thirst. He expresses this vulnerability. And I love for us that perhaps God is asking us to do something. Perhaps God needs us to behave in a certain way or, or model love in a certain way to fulfill a need God has. That's the question. What is God asking you for? Is God asking you for a drink? Is God asking for you to volunteer with Hawkins? Is God asking for more of your attention on this 40-day season to the cross? 
What is God asking of you? This next section of scripture I told my folks this morning is a tricky one for me. And if you'll excuse me, I'm going to grab some caffeine here. We'll keep going. So verses 16 through 19. And I I told my folks this morning, you know, in preaching classes, they tell you there's a difference between preaching and getting on a soapbox of saying you should think this and you shouldn't do that and da-da-da-da-da. You know, it kind of sounds like my mom sometimes. And so you're not supposed to sound that way, except sometimes soapboxes are necessary. So I'm going to stand on a soapbox here. And I'm going to tell you all of the problems I have with how verses 16 through 19 are traditionally taught. And that is that this woman at the well has had some sort of sinfulness that has led her to be an outcast. It's something she did. Something is wrong with her. It made me want to chuck N.T. right across the room earlier this week as I was reading him because I just don't find that in the text. I agree with the theologian Gail O'Day, who says reading this woman as sinful has more to say about what we view as sin than her as a person. And the fact that so many, frankly, male scholars seem to just assume that this is the woman's creation, a a problem she helped make, is an issue. We're never told what happened, why there are these five husbands. The most generous reading would be that she's either barren or been abandoned over and over and over again. And that has nothing to do with her character. But Gail O'Day points out for us that some scholars will say, well, then she gets uncomfortable and tries to change the subject to where do we worship? Do we worship here at this mountain or in Jerusalem? And Gil O'Day says to to say that, to claim that she's changing the subject, is to undermine her theological authority in and of herself. She is having a profound conversation with Jesus. She's debating him just as well as Nicodemus. She is holding her own, and Jesus is not scoffing at her for it. And so our focus here in verses 16 through 19 is not on what the woman did or didn't do. It's supposed to be on what Jesus does. Jesus has insight about her. That's important in John. Jesus is the word, logos, has all sorts of knowledge and wisdom. It's one of the things that marks him as the Messiah. And so Jesus has this insight. But the other proposal I want to make is actually in Aramaic, the word for husbands is lords. You've had five lords. And that would actually connect with the political reality of her day that the Samaritans have been ruled by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now Judeans. And, And you have this husband who's not your husband, right? Well, you have the Roman Empire who's ruling through the Judeans and ruling over them. And so they could be having this political conversation And it impacts her everyday life. And so so she's asking him about this. Who's right here? Who has right to rule or right to tell me where I'm supposed to worship at? Who is right? And Jesus is saying, none of these are right. None of them capture the full picture of God. And then we can skip down. I'll step off my soapbox. But if you want to go to coffee with me, I'll talk forever about why that passage bugs me. I'll step off my soapbox and say, Jesus in verse 26 
says to her, I am he. I am he. If that I am language sounds familiar, good. Because that's what God says to Moses out of the burning bush. I am who I am. This is the fullest revelation we've had of Jesus up until this point in the Gospel of John. I am he, the one speaking to you. And she hears it, and she receives it, and she offers the same invitation Jesus offered the disciples back in chapter 1. She says, come and see a man who told everything about my life, perhaps. Every pain I've faced, every struggle I've had, every slur hurled at me. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And here, her tentative question reminds us that there is faith in the asking. She's not quite ready to make a bold proclamation, but she's willing to risk, to ask, and to witness to what she's experienced. So she goes off, and she does that. And my second question for us this evening is, when has a witness called you to God? You're in this room because of a person. A name probably popped in your head, a Sunday school teacher, an invite from a neighbor. Maybe somebody at USM mentioned that this was different, it was safe, it was a good space. Who was a witness who called you to God? Because that's the kind of witness you and I are called to be. We're called to be the people who say, come and see. Come and see this thing that I'm doing, this faith that has hands and feet to it. This, this faith that changes me, this faith that loves me, come and see. As we move down in the story, there's a lot we can't quite get into about the harvest and the field, but Jesus understands that the mission field extends beyond any boundary, any country, any ethnicity. And the woman goes and she says this to her village and she is the most successful evangelist, evangelist until Jesus leaves the earth. The most successful. Think about that. She saves her whole village. She goes and she testifies. And they all come because they want to see. They want to see, is this true? Could this Jewish man have extended such a warm welcome to the Samaritan woman? How can this be? Our Lenten journey is all about kind of getting towards the cross. We build in this season, and we head towards Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, the crucifixion, and finally it gives way to resurrection. And we say salvation happens at the cross, and it does. It does. But salvation also happens in the moment of belonging, and that's what happens in this text Jesus looks at her and loves her and tells her everything about her life and still says, you belong. All of you belongs. And once you've had a taste of radical acceptance, you can't help but share it. And one person accepting you as you are allows you to risk, maybe if I'm myself here, I can be myself there. She's restored to belonging not only to God, but to her community that she's on the outside of. And we don't know why. Maybe it's repeated abandonment. Maybe it's a limp or a lisp. We have no idea why she's alone, midday, drawing water. But we do know that the moment she could testify to God, she's restored to that community. 
They all experience salvation because of her. But, oh, I think we have a piece of art on the screen behind me. And it's a depiction of the woman at the well and Jesus meeting. And what I love about this picture, the artist Lauren Pittman Wright talks about the fact that Jesus and the Samaritan woman are on the same level. They're making eye contact. And a lot of icons about this scene don't have that equality there. But here they do. And behind Jesus is the temple mound in Jerusalem. And behind her is the holy mountain. And in between the two is a drop of water with the Holy Spirit symbolizing that the meeting place where God is worshipped is right here in this relationship, hand outstended to hand extended. It's empty because both has something the other need. And so when I look at this picture, I, I have this third question. What would it look like for you to imagine Jesus gazing at you with love, saying, all of you belongs. I know all of it. I know your vices. I know the things you don't like about yourself. I know the the loop of self-criticism and that tape that plays on your head. I know your biggest regrets and the dreams you didn't chase. I know it all. And you belong. You are loved. Because when something that radical is told to us, we are free free to leave our water jugs at wells, to abandon everything that used to serve us, and to invite others to come and see. I hope throughout this week those three questions can anchor us. What does God need of you? Where have you witnessed somebody pointing you to God? And finally, what if you imagine God saying to you, all of you belongs? I'm going to invite our helpers up front as we move into this time of communion. And here at Ecclesia, there is an open table, meaning if you are present with us, you are welcome to participate in taking of the elements, and we hope you'll use this time as prayerful reflection. We'll ask you to come up the center aisles and then circle back around to the outer as we move through communion.